Welcome to the Bow Hunter Podcast, your home for all things bow hunting related. Now, here's your host, Jan Segato. What's up, Bow Hunter Nation? Welcome to episode 12 of the Bow Hunter Podcast. Today, we sit down with Justin Zarr of Bow Hunter Die and Busted Rack Gear. Justin has been a huge inspiration to me as a bow hunter since the beginning of my hunting journey, and it was a pleasure to be able to sit down with him on the podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a quick reminder to head on over to bowhunter.com, B-W-H-N-T-R.com, to check out the apparel and gear I have available. Everything purchased from the website directly supports the Bowhunter podcast, and I can't be more appreciative of everyone who listens or makes a purchase. Don't forget that for listening to this podcast, you will get free shipping on all orders. Just use promo code PODCAST for free shipping. One other thing to note is HuntReminder.com. Head on over to HuntReminder.com to set up your reminders for any species in any state for just 99 cents. These reminders will keep you on track for application periods to get your hunting tags. And for listening, you'll get your first reminder absolutely free by using promo code BWHNTR. Now let's jump into my conversation with Justin as he takes us through his story and his tactics for out-of-state hunting. Well, Justin, man, I appreciate you being on the show with me today. Like I said, uh, just before we got started here, uh, you guys with Bowhunter Dive have been a huge inspiration to me as a bow hunter. Uh, I've kind of been watching you and your show since the beginning of my hunting career, and uh, I really appreciate the content you guys put out because it's it's different from everything else you see out there because you guys don't just show your successes you show your successes and your failures and what you learn from that and you know the processes that you put in place to actually get to uh the day you go out in the field and try to successfully harvest an animal and i appreciate all the work you guys put into that uh how you doing today man i'm doing i'm doing good man thank you that was uh, some very very kind words it's uh it's really cool and also scary for me at the same time just to think that you know, at some point we inspired, you know, in part anyways, you know, you to, to go out and start bow hunting, you know, and here we are so many years later and you got a podcast going and I think that's awesome, but it makes me feel very old. <laughs> yeah, We've been doing this for a while. Hey man, I've seen some of your older pictures from some of these expos back in the day and uh, I didn't think you were as old as you are. You've aged well, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, getting up there i'll be 39 here in a couple of weeks so oh, man. You got uh, yeah you got started early then yeah well i mean so todd and i started filming our hunts in i want to say if memory serves maybe like 2006 or 2007 i think is when we first started filming hunts um with todd pregnant at white knuckle productions which is where we kind of got our start i always wanted to film hunts i think a lot of us did back in the day that was kind of like the heyday of everybody was getting into filming hunts so i always wanted to do it and todd pregnant's kind of pushed us to do it when he was starting white knuckle so i want to say 2007 or 2008 i can't remember which was probably the first year that we took filming our hunts seriously and probably killed our first animals on film we did that for a couple years and then when we started bowhunting.com um you know, we were filming our hunts since the inception of bowhunting.com in 2008, I think. Uh, and then we started Bowhunter Die, I think, in 2010 might have been our first official season, uh, if memory serves. But even prior to that, we were just basically going out, filming hunts, and then putting like little 
uh, hunt snippets, if you will, kind of on the website, but in in no real format, there was no, um, there was no studio or anything like that. It was kind of like, just go out, film a hunt, put it together and just kind of put it on the website. Uh, we didn't really start the, you know, the show format until, uh, 2010, we only did a couple episodes cause we didn't really know what the heck we were doing at that time. And then I'd say season two was our first like real legitimate, like studio format editor type of real season for us. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I, uh, like I said, I've been following you for a while and you know, just, just the fact of jumping into filming your own hunts, that's a whole nother beast in itself out just outside of hunting alone. And that's something I aspire to do one day. I just want to make sure I'm prepared as well as I can. And I've, I'm sure. in the hunting world, I guess you could call me a rookie, but I've kind of crammed as much of this stuff as I can in, uh, as I've went along. And so I'm, I'm I, this month and a half until October is eating me alive. <laughs> well, you're close enough to Kentucky, man. You should just jump across the river I know. and uh, get a get a tag for over there. You know, they start September 7th. You only got a couple weeks. You have to wait. I know. Well, that's something we, you and I are going to talk about today. But before we do that, <laughs> um, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got started in hunting and all the way up to the, the what you were just talking about with bowhunting.com, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, if we go way back to the beginning, you know, I grew up in a, in a, a family that hunted. So I think my grandfather really would be the person that was responsible for kind of getting my dad into hunting. Uh, my grandfather never really bow hunted. I think really later in life, he crossbow hunted a little bit, um, up in was Northern Wisconsin once he got into his older years, but I don't believe he ever compound bow hunted, uh, but rifle hunted. So my dad grew up kind of in, in rifle camp and in, in Northern Wisconsin, and he got bit by the just general outdoors bug. I think when he was in high school, he was hunting, he was fishing, he did a lot of trapping, he was all over the place doing stuff and really got into bow hunting like in the early eighties. Uh, my dad started bow hunting. So I grew up in a, in a house where like my dad, that's, that's all he did really was bow hunt. He didn't even gun hunt much growing up a few times here and there, but most everything he did was bow hunting. Um, when I was young, my dad actually owned, uh, an archery and a gun shop for a few years, uh, when I was a kid. So I want to say back in the late eighties, it was, you know, I'd get off of school. Uh, my mom would pick me up and drop me off at the archery shop with my dad and I would spend my nights there. Um, you know, he was working on bows and fletching arrows and it was a check station back when guys had to actually, you know, bring their deer in to, to get them checked in. Um, so I just kind of grew up in that, that lifestyle. So I've been bow hunting, um, back then in Illinois, you couldn't start hunting until you're 12. Mm-hmm. So I think 92, 93, somewhere right in there, I was like my first actual season of carrying a bow with me, but I had been kind of tagging along with my dad. I was super young. I think he brought me on a, on a bear hunt in Ontario. I was seven or eight, something like that. Yeah. Uh, brought me on a, a black bear, a spring bear hunt in Ontario back when you could still do that. So been around it, you know, for a long, long time. Uh, I met Todd Graff in, I think it was 2003, something like that, uh, through a mutual friend of ours. And uh, I actually started working for Todd part-time at his pheasant hunting club on the weekends. I was uh, releasing birds and cleaning birds and and doing that type of stuff. I did that for, uh, you know, part-time for one season. And then the following year, um, you know, Todd owns an IT consulting business and, and we have a web development company now as well. 
Um, I went to work for Todd full-time at the IT consulting company in like 2004. Back then, um, he owned a website called huntingnet.com. So I kind of came on board. I was helping run HuntingNet, uh, learning the ropes of IT and web development and everything. Todd sold that website uh, in 2007. Uh, and then 2008, we started bowhunting.com. Um, you know, because Todd and I are like, that's our real passion is, is bow hunting. We do a lot of other things, but bow hunting is like the thing that, that eats us up the most. Uh, so we figured since Todd owned bowhunting.com, what a better thing to do than to go, you know, start this whole thing. So we started that website up, um, you know, 11 years ago now and, uh, started the show, as I mentioned, a couple years after that, uh, you know, and here we are today still, alive and kicking and, and doing pretty well. Yeah, man, that's an awesome story. Um, you were really, really into it as a child, you know, especially at those check-in stations there back in the day when they did that. So you kind of got to see what all these guys are bringing in. And I'm sure that just kind of lit that fire inside of you, especially when these guys brought in these big giants and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and for anybody that's listening that knows, like I grew up um, you know, in Northern Illinois and we were in Lake and McHenry County, which is just outside of the city. But like those two counties, if you were to look back in the, the Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett books, like they were the premier big buck counties really in the country at the time. Like this is before Pike and Brown and Adams and that kind of golden triangle came to be, you know, Kansas wasn't what it is today. Like this Northern Illinois Lake and McHenry County was the absolute hot spot for big bucks back in the the late 80s and and 90s so we got to see tons of big deer uh there was a lot more woods and fields back then now unfortunately so much of it is built up into homes and 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 businesses or it's been converted into forest preserves that are off limits to hunting uh so it's the landscape around here is significantly different than it was you know 25 years ago but when i was growing up you know it was woods and fields and and stuff all over the place so Got to see a lot of big deer uh, when I was younger. You know, I I was I was I always tell people I was raised on you know Roger Ragland videos and some of the early early Drury Outdoors. You know, when they were still VHS tapes oh, yeah. before they were even you know DVDs back in the day. Um, I'd sit around and uh, sit around at my dad's place and watch those videos. Miles Keller videos. You know, Bob Fulcrod. You know, those were the guys that I grew up watching as a as a kid watching their hunting videos. Yeah, the other thing you mentioned was uh, how kind of Todd owned bowhunting.com as a domain, and so you you said, you know, why not? We have we have the <laughs> domain. And so it's funny, you know, it just made me think the era we live in where these virtual domains, these virtual addresses, you're, you're basically like, well, I own this storefront, so why don't I put a store in it? Sure. And so, you know, that's just something I wanted to mention. The nerd in me, I guess, came came out in that thought. And, you know, if people are wanting to do something with with their brand or their personal brand or whatever, you know, you really got to think all the way down to that little detail because I'm sure that right there, I think in the early days of me hunting, just Googling bow hunting, that's going to be, you know, one of the top things that comes up is bowhunting.com because that's what, you know, it's literally that. So... just that literalness of that address, you know, you guys definitely had, and I'm sure that goes all the way back to the IT experience, and you guys just kind of took advantage of that situation. Um, and on top of that, you and Todd are a pair, dude. You guys <laughs> always have me rolling, whether it's on the show or the little videos you guys show on Instagram and Facebook. 
especially this most recent one, peeing out of the stand. Ah, uh, yes, that was a that was a fun one. You know, we had a, these ideas, you know, and and it was kind of a collaborative effort. You know, I had some ideas back at ATA show that we wanted to do these fun little videos where we would interview a bunch of different people in the industry just to kind of get their take on things, whether it was just a humorous thing like do you pee out of the stand, or what, whether it was a controversial thing like how far would you shoot a deer with archery equipment you know i had this idea and then todd really came up with the idea of let's go out and film this kind of intro to the the dup out of the stand video which i wasn't fully on board with at the beginning i was kind of like oh that's lame nobody's gonna care if we do that or not i kind of fought it for a while and then finally i just kind of was like fine you know let's go do it so we went out and did it here recently and uh I thought it turned out pretty pretty well. Of course, I'm biased, but it definitely makes me laugh when, when I watched it. Oh, it had me laughing for sure. But, uh, you know, on top of all that stuff you got going on, you also have your own brand that you recently started in the past couple of years called Busted Rat. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so my friend, my best friend since probably seventh grade, Mike Willand, uh, he's actually the person that introduced me to Todd Graff originally. Uh, he knew Todd when we were in high school. And um, so Mike and I have known each other forever. We grew up together, hunted together for a long time. He actually filmed with us for a couple of years when we first uh, started bowhunting.com and bowhunter die. So if you watch any of our old stuff back in the, the white knuckle in the early days, you may have recognized Mike. Um, but him and I always just had this, we have a quirky sense of humor between the two of us. And we were always talking about like, oh, it'd be, it'd be we'd come up with an idea and we'd say, oh man, it would be funny if somebody put that on a t-shirt. I would totally wear a t-shirt that, that said that. Yep. Uh, so a couple of years ago, you know, him and I were sitting around one night just kind of BSing and, and we were like, you know, let's, let's do it. You know, I had learned enough about, you know, design and, and t-shirt production and web development and kind of social media and marketing. I was like, I think I know enough to be able to, you know, start this thing and, you know, we'll kind of see how, how it goes. So, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, we, we threw in a little bit of money and, and started Busted Rack. And, you know, here we are two years later. It's still alive and kicking, um, you know, and we're chipping away at it. You know, we're making small gains, you know, here and there. It's not easy in between, you know, working kind of multiple jobs for, for both of us and having young families. Um, so I it totally doesn't get quite as, your struggle, brother. <laughs> it doesn't get quite as much attention and love as I'd like to give it, but it's doing pretty well. You know, it's standing on its own and it's making a couple dollars here and there for us. So can't really complain. You know, we never started it to, to try and get rich by any means. We just, uh, honestly, we just wanted to make shirts that we would wear exactly. because I got sick yep. of, I got sick of all the, the crap out there that I was like, well, I would never wear that. I want something different. Yep. So it was more or less like, let's create stuff for ourselves and maybe other people will want to buy it. That's so funny you say that because that's kind of what I did. Um, outside of the podcast, I have some t-shirts and things like that. And I started just, you know, I want to make shirts that I want to wear. And I told myself, even if this fails, I'm going to have a whole lot of shirts that I like. So. <laughs> Believe me, my, my closet is overflowing with t-shirts. My wife, between hats and t-shirts, my wife is literally ready to kill me if I bring anything else home. Oh, I, I, I'm sure mine feels the same way. But uh, <laughs> I got to get her a shirt every now and then to keep her happy. Yep. Totally understand. But, uh, you know, that deer killing hat, that's like my favorite thing you got on there, but that sucker sold out. Yeah, man. We did, uh, we did our first consumer 
trade show this summer. We went up and did Deer Fest in Wisconsin, which is a fun show. I've always liked that one. And we weren't doing it for bowhunting.com this year. So Busted Rack did a booth there. And uh, just kind of as a trial run to see, you know, hey, are people going to like this stuff? Like, I've mostly been selling like into my personal circle and sphere of influence. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you know, of course, all your buddies and your friends and people that know you and like you are going to buy it and tell you that, you know, they like it. You know, let's get this out into the public and people that don't know who the heck we are and did did surprisingly well, did better than we thought we were going to do. And we, yeah, we ended up selling out of all those hats. I've got more on order. They'll be they'll be in shortly. Um, but yeah, we sold out of all those hats, a couple different shirt designs. So yeah, it, uh, it did pretty well for us considering it was a last minute decision and we piecemealed a booth together for like a hundred bucks. You know, it certainly wasn't anything fancy, but, Whatever uh, it takes, it, man. yeah, it, uh, it went over pretty well. That's awesome. That was just a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah. That was, I think two weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. Yep. I remember seeing that online. So, um, Let's jump ahead here and talk about this season, this upcoming season. I know one thing you and I kind of chatted about before the podcast was uh, you got a public land Iowa hunt coming up. You want to, is this your first public land Iowa hunt or is this something you've been doing for a couple years or, you know, tell me a little bit more yeah. about it. So this will be the first time I ever drew an Iowa tag. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a sad story, I guess, kind of, you know, when, when, Todd Pringnitz first started White Knuckle Productions. He was living in, uh, well, he was living in Iowa at the time, but he had moved from Michigan to Iowa uh, specifically just to, to chase better deer, better mm. deer hunting. Yep. Um, and he was like, dude, you got to start putting in for Iowa points. You know, we're, we're, you know, we'll hunt together at some point. So I, I bought my first Iowa preference point, I think in like 2007. And then I had bought a couple others in like 2008 and then maybe like 2010. Um, and then I stopped buying Iowa preference points cause I had three, I was sitting on three points and I was like, yeah, you know, at some point in time, I'm going to go do Iowa. But I always had this apprehension that like, man, if I'm going to drop that kind of money on a tag, I don't really want to go take my chances on public, but it's, you know, it's hard to find private. And I just, I had really good spots to hunt in Illinois and I still do. And I was, I always kind of told myself like, man, do I really want to spend the money just to to jump on the other side of the river to, to hunt Iowa. How much better could it be? So now, you know, fast forward so many years, you know, unfortunately, you know, Todd Pringnitz passed away earlier this year after uh, injuries from an ATV accident this spring. And, you know, I was down at his memorial service and I was talking to, to a couple guys down there that I've known, you know, for years. And they were talking about, you know, some of the, the hunts they've had and experiences on, on Iowa public. And, uh, I was like, man, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. I'm knocking on the door of 40 here. I don't know how much, I mean, how many more years do I want to be running and gunning with 50 pounds of gear on my back, you know, two miles back into, into public. So I'm like, you know what? I better just do this now because who knows if I'm going to have the opportunity to, to do it again. As my kids get older and they get more involved in sports and other things, you know, health is never guaranteed. I mean, so I just figured, you know, why wait? I was honestly driving home from Mount Pleasant, Iowa after Todd's service. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put it in for an Iowa tag this year. Uh, so I, a couple weeks after that, I drove out to Iowa prior to applying for a tag. I drove out, drove out to the zone that I was going to apply for, mm -hmm. uh, picked out a spot of public and spent a day scouting it and walked as much as I possibly could in, in one day. Uh, and then I came home and I was like, all right, that looked pretty good. Let's, let's apply. 
So uh, I applied along with a couple other people that I know. Uh, my buddy Matt also got drawn. He only had two points. So he was kind of up in the air, 50-50 shot if, if he was going to get a tag or not. Yep. Uh, but both of us drew tags, fortunately. So the plan for me anyways is to spend a good amount of the the heart of my season, if you will, kind of that last week in October through second or third week of November is to spend as much of that time as possible in Iowa trying to fill that tag. Yeah. That's kind of crazy how that came full circle for you, you know, and it's unfortunate the, the way it had to go happen. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm really glad that you're going to be able to do that. And I'm sure it's, it's going to honor him to go out there and hopefully seal the deal on a big Iowa buck. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so, man. I mean, it looks pretty good. You know, everybody I've talked to, talked to a couple guys that have hunted that zone and, and that area, and they've all, you know, seen decent deer. I mean, I'm certainly not expecting 190s behind every tree, but everybody I talked to said, you know, if you hit it right and, you, and you're smart about where you go and you get lucky, you know, you absolutely could have an opportunity at a, you know, 140, 150 deer, yep. you know, which is, it's a great deer anywhere you, anywhere you go. Right. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. So you'd mentioned, um, you know, Hey, why don't you just run down to Kentucky here in September? And you know, that thoughts crossed my mind a lot and I'm definitely going to do it. Probably won't be this year, but I'm definitely going to make that happen. Cause I will really want to hunt a Kentucky velvet buck. But at the same time, I've only hunted in the state of Illinois and I've never actually had the opportunity to hunt elsewhere. Can you kind of go through that process of planning and executing an out of state public land hunt? I know you guys, yeah. I know you've been to a few other states and hunted. I'm not sure how much of it was public, how much of it was private, but you know, whenever you're getting into that, you get that opportunity like you have now with Iowa. Um, luckily you were able to go over there and put boots on ground for a full day and absorb as much as that information and knowledge as you can for that area. Keeping that in mind, you know, if you, if you didn't have that access prior to putting in, um, would you have done it differently? Would you have not applied at all? Or what other tactics would you have used to kind of scout that land out? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm sure I, if I didn't have the opportunity to get down in the spring and scout, I would probably still go. Uh, I've done that in Illinois on new pieces of ground that I've never been on before and just walked in during the season and hunted. I use basically the same methodology on, on that, but I mean, if you can get that information in the spring and just have an idea of kind of where you want to go, it just speeds up that whole process. So, it, you know, in total, uh, you know, I've hunted Wisconsin public, um, I've hunted Illinois public and I've hunted Kansas public. Those are the three States that up till now I've hunted public land in, uh, for deer specifically this year, I will be doing a Kentucky hunt early in the season. Uh, on public, so I'll be not too far away from from you, uh, and then I'll be obviously doing Iowa as well. Uh, so my process is basically, uh, I'm sure it's the same as a lot of people. I try to electronically scout as much as I can, meaning you know I look at everything from you know where are the properties at, how big are they, look like, where are the nearest population centers, where the heck am I going to stay when I go out there, yeah. uh, you know, is there camping, is there hotels, you know, what are what are the options. So I try to plan that stuff out as much as I can in advance. Uh, and then in my case, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to drive out and scout these areas generally in the springtime. Uh, you know, when we did Kentucky, or not Kentucky, when we did Kansas a couple years ago, we combined uh, a spring scouting trip with a turkey hunt 
because they have uh, their turkey season starts very early for the archery season. So we kind of made a dual purpose trip out of it. Like, hey, let's go down, let's scout for two days, and then let's turkey hunt for two days. If we're going to make the effort to go out there, like let's let's hunt while we're at it. Oh yeah. Um, so I mean that that was you know really good. Uh, you know, in the case of Iowa and Kentucky, both of them were just purely scouting trips in the spring. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm electronically scouting first, trying to pick out areas that I like trying to put, uh, I I tend to drop a lot of points on a map of features that I want to go check out, uh, in person, because what you find a lot of times when you're electronically scouting, something looks one way on a map, but when you get there, it may not look like what you wanted it to look like. And I'll give you an example, like this year. I found a spot in Iowa that just looked awesome. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a money spot. Like bucks are going to be bedded here. It's going to be really good. I got out there in the woods in that particular area. The terrain was exactly what I thought it was going to be, but the woods in that particular area were just super wide open. There was almost no underbrush. And I was like, okay, well so much for this being a bedding area. Like there's nothing that's going to lay down in here. But, and I'm glad I did that now because I was able to rule that out of an area that I wanted to go back and hunt you know, in late October, uh, versus like if I had not scouted in the spring and only gone off the map, I would have showed up out there in October, probably with a stand on my back. And I would have got up there and been like, Oh crap, you know, this, this doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. And now I got to go to plan B or C or D or E or F or whatever it may be. You know, last year I, I, I went to a place in Illinois, some public that I did not scout in the spring. Uh, and I showed up for an afternoon hunt and I went out there to, to, to go on a hunt. And I literally walked around for almost two hours and never found a spot that I liked to hunt. So I just went back to my truck and left. I never even hunted that night. Um, because every place that I got to, it was like, just wasn't right. Or the wind direction was doing something I didn't want it to do. It was, you know, the wind was a Northwest wind, but down in these valleys, you know, it was blowing Southeast you know, kind of backdrafting up that ravine. So, you know, everywhere I went, like it just, just never felt right. And I wish I would have scouted it in the spring because it would have saved me possibly from making that mistake of going in there and trying to scout and hunt at the same time, which, you know, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. Yeah. That definitely makes things a little bit harder and it's, it's a lot harder to go in there and make that decision just to, just to take a step back and rethink the whole situation you know it takes a lot of discipline and um i've done that a few times here in illinois where i went into a spot blind and you know just kind of went for it and once especially if i don't know if you've ever done it but if you've ever went into a spot in the morning before the sun's up that you've not you're not really familiar with that's (laughs) that's that's really tough yeah. That's and, about as tough as it gets right there, man. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even like to go into places I do know in the morning and like <laughs> hang a stand and try to like, let alone somewhere that I don't know. Yeah. I've done it a couple of times just because it was a limited opportunity and I had to take advantage of what I had. But, um, you know, you mentioned the electronic scouting, you know, digital scouting, using the apps on your phone maps and things like that. And that's one of those things that, at least in my circles have been, has been kind of controversial um, the, because it's getting more popular. You're getting these apps that are more developed. And I think that you nailed it whenever you just talked about how you combine 
the the tools you have in the electronic, you know, on your phone, and then actually going out and following up with that and checking those areas out. And I'd say to any uh, inexperienced or new hunter, that's that's the best way to do it is check these places out. Use the tools you have. Use these apps, whatever that whatever app you prefer. There's a ton of them out there, and pinpoint you know those spots that you think look good and then when you have an opportunity go out there and check it out and that keeps you from going in there blind and not really knowing what the land looks like from an aerial view and at the same time you're not also just relying on that digital scouting so i think that's a really good point to be made and something you can kind of take away from that um the other question i had for you about the out-of-state public land hunts um are you running any type of trail camera system or any like ongoing scouting system like that generally speaking no i'm not um i mean not that i wouldn't but some of them are just too far away i will say when we went down to kansas a couple years ago our plan was to make two trips uh our plan was to do like a four or five day hunt in october and then come back in november so we did bring cameras and put them out uh we ended up not going back in november uh but luckily we probably would have gone back but Luckily, one of our friends was hunting that same area while we were gone, and uh, he shot a buck and was tagged out, but he was down there for like eight or nine days with a buddy of his, and they drove together. So but our friend was tagged out. His buddy was still hunting, so uh, we gave him like GPS pin coordinates to our cameras and our our stands, and he went and pulled them down and brought them back for us. That's awesome. Uh, just because the, the hunting was was pretty bad generally in in that area he wasn't seeing a lot of deer we didn't see many deer now he did get lucky and shot a really nice buck um looking back i wish we would have gone back and hunted but but my buddy matt and i were both on pretty good deer here in illinois uh that year and considering that we spent like four days in kansas and saw like four deer between the two of us in those four days uh, we were like, man, do we really want to leave illinois during the peak of the rut yep. to go back and chance it or do we just say screw it you know and eat our eat our tags which is what we did so we did put cameras out and you know we got a couple decent deer on camera i'm not gonna lie when he pulled the cards and looked at them there's definitely a couple bucks i would have shot running around some of those those walking areas in kansas wisconsin i've never run any cameras at all uh on any of the public i kind of just go in blind and whatever happens happens it's kind of the fun of it for me you know it's a change of pace you know i feel like all the private stuff i do here in illinois i got cameras on every third tree it seems like so i know every deer you know pretty much by heart the minute you see them you know, I, I know whether it's a deer i'm going to shoot or not so i enjoy the going to public and not having any preconceived notion or, or knowledge of what's out there uh it's just kind of part of the fun of it for me so I, we don't have anything in kentucky now we do have a guy that's filming for us in kentucky now who lives fairly close to the public we're going to hunt and he's been doing some scouting for us and running some cameras so we have somewhat of an idea, um, but not that great of an idea. He's doing it more, probably more for himself because right. he's hunting some of those same areas and he's just sharing the intel with us. So we're going in like half blind, I would say this fall, not completely fully blind. We know that, you know, there's some decent deer in the area, you know, and he's been doing some long range scouting, kind of just trying to get an idea of what areas these deer are using. So I feel like we've got, you know, definitely one leg up. Uh, on the Kentucky trip compared to what we normally have, which is pretty much nothing. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely blessed to live here in Illinois. We've got some pretty big deer here. And then the population itself, 
not even talking about size of deer, but we just have a huge population here, especially down south. And I know northern Illinois is pretty well the same way once you get out of the city. Um, so that was, I guess I'm blessed for, from that perspective because I know now I've met a couple of guys that live in a city and that, you know, at a later age, they decide to take up bow hunting. And now they've got a huge struggle of finding places to hunt. So they're, they're, you know, going different states and, and that's great. I'm glad they're willing to make that, that sacrifice of time and things like that to go out there and accomplish their goals. But, you know, being able to just walk out my back door, a 10 minute walk or a five minute four wheeler drive, I'm just blessed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely. So, um, we can kind of wrap it up here. Uh, if you don't mind, one thing I like to have all my guests do is uh, talk about just a short story, your most memorable hunt. Um, yeah, you know, my typical answer to this one is, is a deer I shot, you know, the, the year or a couple months after my dad passed away back in 2010. But I feel like I've st- told that story a million times. Everybody's seen the video. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about another one from when I was a kid um, that's probably my most memorable crazy story so when i was young um i used to go to canada to ontario specifically twice a year with my dad i I was i wasn't hunting at the time we'd go in the spring and we would bear hunt we'd go back in the fall and we would moose hunt this was all archery my and i would tag along uh with my dad i was 10 11 12 13 14 years old right in there so when i I think i was 12 i want to say it was 92 um my dad called in and shot a, a huge Canada moose. I mean, big, big moose. If anybody knows anything about Canada moose, you know, they're not quite as big as an Alaska Yukon moose. Um, this bull ended up um, field dressed weight was like 1500 pounds. Wow. So he was very big for a, for a, for a Canada moose. He was 55 and a half inches wide, which is very wide for a Canada moose. So he calls in this moose. Uh, he comes in kind of uphill from us. Uh, my dad shoots him. And unbeknownst to us at the time, you know, information about like where you should shoot a moose with an arrow wasn't really as widely available. Like now you could just Google search it and right. figure it out. Back in those days, it was like, I think you shoot it where you shoot a whitetail. <laughs> um, but a moose's vitals tend to be a little bit higher up in their chest cavity than a deer's do. So he shoots this moose. Um, we ultimately figured out that he single lung shot the moose. At the time, he thought it was a double lung this thing runs up this little hill and it's standing there and there's a, it's just pouring blood. I mean, it looks like somebody took a gallon milk jug and it's just pouring blood out of it. Right. So we're thinking the thing is going to go down any second. It kind of stumbles a little bit, goes into the woods. So we're thinking, okay, it's going to be dead. We leave, we come back hour, two hours later with my dad's buddy. And, um, we end up kicking this thing up. And again, back in those days, like there was no forums or no Facebook to tell you like when in doubt back out. Right. right. Like nobody, nobody knew that it used to be like, if you got blood, get after them right. right, and just keep going. So we end up tracking this moose. I don't know how many miles through the Canadian wilderness. We are going through swamps. I'm up to my knees in freaking mud. And back in those days, there was no lacrosse alpha burleys, man. We were wearing <laughs> like, we were wearing black rubber boots that we bought from farm and fleet that were uninsulated with you know, old army fatigues, pretty much. We're yep. trudging through this swamp and knee deep mud. And eventually we're going down this point, uh, out into a lake and we're thinking, okay, then maybe this thing's going to die out on this point. Well, we get out to the point and the damn moose is swimming across the lake <laughs> and all you can see is its head and its rack going across the lake. So we watch where it goes. It swims to the other side of the lake. 
We mark a point. We walk all the way around this lake. We get over there, and we're trying to sneak up the shore. My dad and this other guy trying to sneak up the shore to shoot this moose. And they can't see it. They can't see it. They don't know where it went. All of a sudden, the thing takes off swimming again out into this bay. and It gets like 50 yards from the shore, and the thing completely goes underwater. You can't see it. It's literally gone. And we're like, holy crap, does this thing drown? Like, what happened? Well, all of a sudden, the thing, like, emerges back up out of the water. It's, like, spraying water out of its nose. And it goes out into this shallow bay. You know, a moose is, what, 8, 10 feet at the shoulders? Yeah. So it's in, like, a 5- or 6-foot bay, and it's just standing out in the bay. And it's just standing there, and it won't, it won't move. And it's probably 80 or 100 yards out. So, of course, you know, they, they take a couple cracks at it <laughs> with arrows, you know, and old bows, you know, there's no range finder. It's not like it is today. They loft a couple arrows at, at this thing, and they, of course, they miss. So, by this point, it's starting to get dark, and we are miles away from the truck. I'm kind of scared because I have no idea where the heck we're even at. So, we leave this moose. We make it back to the truck by dark. The next morning, we came back with a boat, a small a boat and a motor, like a portage boat, just a little 12-foot aluminum boat and a little, like, you know, 10-horse motor. And we, uh, we figure out, we looked at uh, topographic maps, like actual printed maps, you know, not, we didn't have onyx, right? Yeah. We used printed laminated topo maps to figure out the closest logging road to this lake. We drug this dang boat down there, went out across the lake with the boat. And sure enough, this moose is, is laying dead. It's floating in the, in the water, wow. uh, all the way on the other side of the lake. We tied I don't know, a bunch of ropes to it. And then we basically trolled back across the lake, dragging this moose with us, got it as close to shore as we could, and then used winches and come alongs to get the, the thing out of the lake. So I mean, it was a two day, just crazy adventure in the Canadian wilderness. You know, before we didn't have any GPS units or cell phones or any of that stuff. I mean, it was, uh, and for me being 12 years old, like it was, it was a memory that was burned into my brain that I will not soon forget. Oh, I bet. Um, there is a bunch of miscellaneous video from this whole adventure uh, that my dad had edited together into like an hour-long VHS tape uh, that has a bunch of this stuff on it. Uh, at some point in time, I'm going to digitize that, and I will get it up on bowhunting.com or on our YouTube channel or something because it's uh, it's just really neat to watch some of that old you know, bow hunting footage, you know, before, you know, all the gear changed and everything. So that's probably, I would say my most memorable hunt of all time was, was just that crazy experience as a, as a young person. Um, you know, and I'm sure that served to, to help get me hooked on, on bow hunting. Oh, I guarantee it. And it's, it's amazing, especially the larger game like that, how, how determined they are to live and survive after, after they've been fatally wounded so just it goes to show just what they're willing to do to to extend the point of life if you will sure Uh, so was any of that moose salvageable yeah yeah surprisingly uh the meat was all still good i mean uh we got i don't know how many hundreds of pounds of meat off of the dang thing um and man moose meat is freaking awesome you know, it is real. It's up there with elk, caribou. You know, any of those real big game animals like that uh, seem to be some of the best. You know, wild game meat that you can get. So yeah, meat was all all still good. Um, 
you know, yeah. And the, the, the dang things actually hanging on the wall at my house now. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so it was one of the few mounts of my dad's that I kept when, when he passed away. So it's, uh, it's hanging up in my house now. My wife loves it. <laughs> I bet she does. <laughs> so, uh, where can our listeners find you and the things that you're, uh, involved in on social media? Yeah. So, uh, so the biggest thing for me is, you know, bowhunting.com is the easiest place to go. It's the easiest one to remember, you know, you can get to all of the bowhunting.com and bowhunter die social links through our website. The website is really the hub of everything we do, uh, there as far as, you know, bustedrack.com. If you want to look at our quirky, funny hats and t-shirts that we sell, uh, or you can find me, if you're looking for me personally, best place is probably Instagram these days. Uh, at Sir Zarr, Z-A-R-R is my Instagram uh, handle or, you know, check out any of the business stuff. I think we're at bowhunting, D-O-T-C-O-M on Instagram or at busted rack gear uh, in, on Instagram. That seems to be kind of the hot place where everybody's at these days. All the cool kids are on, on the gram, I guess. That's right. That's where I do. All, that's where I spend all my time anyway. <laughs> yep. yep. All, right, all right, man. Hey, I know uh, you need to get going and uh, I really appreciate you being on the show, man. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want to do it again, you want to chat about anything else, just let me know. I definitely will, sir. I appreciate it. No problem. Have a good one. See you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe. For more information and show notes, head on over to BWHNTR.com.